0: Network
1: MIDI session
0: MIDI show control confirmed DMX interface connected. light control
2: confirmed
0: Ethernet active audio interface
2: active and engaged Arduino
0: unit Bluetooth remote pair OSC IP active we're ready start the queue featuring Andy Dolph Joshua Langman Dave Mickey Alex Sparks and Mark Neiser.
3: Hey everybody! Welcome to the queue. We got our crew up here tonight. Uh, hey Andy, hello, and hey Joshua, how are you? Hello, I'm good. First of all, did you guys notice that we have a winner to our our contest from the DMX USB Pro Manager Challenge? We reviewed the DMX USB Pro, uh, DMX interface, right, uh, on which the show I, I use pretty frequently, and the ODE version, and we kind of leaned toward the ODE uh, for many many reasons. One of which was you couldn't configure reliably. Well, I'd never have been able to open this piece of software called the Pro Manager that Entech puts out. So, just as a farce, we put up uh, a contest to see if anyone can se- anyone sends a picture, a screenshot of the DMX USB Pro Manager running on OS X. Um, you'd get a QLab T-shirt, which I could have done that. Are now available? Really? I've gotten that to work. I don't know. I have spent weeks and weeks working on this thing. Do I get a
4: QLab t-shirt?
3: The no, contest I, is over, uh, my friend.
4: It's It required uh, writing to the support people in Australia. Um, and uh, there's a, you need to disable a driver. Yep,
3: the D2XX driver. Right, that's
4: built in in OS 10 So you actually need to disable something that comes with the operating system, which is a little sketchy.
3: I did that. I not only did I do and that, I, I hooked it up to a PC and ran it on a PC and I couldn't get it to work.
4: Uh and then there's, there's uh, like two other <laughs> there's like two pieces of configuration software that you can only have one of them installed at a time, so you need to install one of them and then deinstall it and then install the manager. I, I have gotten it to work. Um, I've given them this feedback, though. It's an enormous pain. I haven't tried on a PC, but at least on a Mac.:
3: Well, Claude Heinz, who was our interview guest, uh, wrote a um, terminal script to do exactly what you're talking about. In one one swoop, one swoop, and it's posted. well. He deserves that T-shirt. <laughs> it's posted on the website, and he has a very eloquent explanation to of exactly what he did. And so, yep, the T-shirts. Uh, actually, you can get the T-shirts on the website now too if you hit the merch link. Q LAB Stage Reaver, Mad Tech, Millimeter Garage Band, X, X, Logic, remote My MIDI Remote, It's time for the q review. QLab has launched an update to the QLab Remote, which is great news because me personally, I use this thing constantly. Say, Mike, because my computer is trapped on stage, and the it, it works great. Except you couldn't trigger a different Q list. So if you had QList list A open and you went up up into the booth or whatever, and your computer's down on stage, and you went in to change Q lists, and you did that. Which you could do through the remote, but then hit go, it wouldn't fire the new the new queue list. And so they it will now trigger the current queue list in QLab remote rather than the frontmost one in QLab, which is I was I was begging for this, and I'm so so excited. What I had to do was make these uh, little AppleScript jump queues at the bottom of every queue list I have, so I would trigger that AppleScript jump queue to physically change the other queue list to the frontmost in QLab. So every single cue list I had had to have these little jump cues at the bottom. So anyway, very exciting. Um, the last request I have is to be able to do keystone, I'm sorry, um, corner pin correction from within the remote, which would save me having to use uh, a program I call sc- that we call screens, which uh, does that same process.
1: Yeah, I've never used remote. I mean, I, I bought it as soon as it came out because it was like, oh, this is cool. And then I just never use it. Because uh, it's so reflex to me to just grab my laptop and go out into the house
3: with a VNC session. Except for me, I have all my, you know, every side of the computer is plugged in. So I'd have to unplug all this crap and to do it. Well, no,
1: it has to be a laptop that's separate from your
3: QLab computer. Oh, I got you right. So I use my iPad with VNC. The screens program I tell you about is a iPad app or an iPhone app. And so I can do that and control it that way. And that that's fine. But the QLab... Uh, app is really cool, fast, Let lets you do all kinds of tweaks. And that was my only thing, was to be able to switch those queue lists. And now it is it's happened. So, hallelujah.
2: What? How? When? Where? Why? F-A-Q the Q. You've got
1: questions. We've got long and detailed technical answers.
4: Setting up a show computer for sound and video playback. It's a checklist that I give to uh, people who need to set up show machines for me. Uh, with basic instructions on configurating the operating system for how we want the machines to function during a show. Because sort of the biggest problem with using QLab or any software that runs on a, a normal consumer computer in a show context is that the uh, the computer is not purpose-built for that function. So you don't have a checklist like this with a lighting console because... It's a purpose-built computer, but the Mac that you buy from the Apple Store is not a purpose-built computer, obviously for running a show on. So I have this checklist that's a bunch of uh, system preferences and physical things, like I like to tape over the glowing Apple logo if the booth is <laughs> that's visible gonna hurt from my the stock, audience.
1: You know, it's really funny. I very consciously don't do that. <laughs> Me too. That if people look, if people look up at the booth, I want them to see Apple logos and know that the show is being run on a Mac
3: word. And, and why <laughs> it's a beacon calling people towards the light. I mean,
1: and obviously if I was in a venue where the light that that put out was going to be a distraction, I wouldn't do yeah. it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm often in like small
4: right. black boxes. It's actually, it is, you know, it's visible from the audience and it's actually a distraction.
1: Yeah, no and and I've been in situations where I've put layers of neutral density gel over the screen to get the screen brightness down.
4: Uh I've never done that, but I do I do set the brightness quite low and then disable I don't even know this should be on my list. It may not even be on the list. Disable the uh, automatic brightness adjustment. You know, the the context that I wrote this for is uh you know the show has a computer i design the show and i leave and the show keeps running and it's a stage manager it's an op and there's you know some level of sort of child proofing <laughs> right. going on oh. of just trying you know trying to make the computer essentially incapable of yeah. doing anything except run the show the way that you want it to be and run. i used so.
3: this guide which you posted i think you posted the forums uh for me when i set up the school lighting system that's controlled from a mac and an ipad so that Pretty much, they can't break, well, I'm sure they can figure out a way to break it, but, you know, DVDs and keeping Energy Saver up and uh, just locking uh, apps, uh, permissions on the whatever the user account is to keep people from screwing with stuff. Why do you, deleting an application, what does that do? Uh, because if the app's not running... Just to keep them from accidentally launching yeah, it
4: it's not it's not a uh system resources thing because you know if the app's not running that's that's not a problem it's just it's sort of about the mentality of turning the mac into a purpose-built mm-hmm. specialized piece of hardware you know i don't want people to be able to open you know word right. And start, like, writing something in the middle of a show. You know, I just want it to not even be an option. And the
3: the way I do that is I just turn on parental controls. And that eliminates, gives them the ability only to launch, you know, I think I let them launch QLab, iTunes. And I think I don't even think I let them use Safari. So and Disk Utilities. That's about it. Everything else is uh, is locked out. You also mentioned the light uh, install all appropriate licenses, and I wonder if people really are aware of the rental the rental deal, which is amazing for considering you have a was it thirty minute? That's demo mode, right? It'll run in demo for thirty, but then you know, so you can set up a show, kind of get it working, and then you know, pay you know seven dollars a day at the most for the pro bundle uh, to run your show. That's a great deal. Yeah, which is a great deal. Yeah. Um, producers are uh, very happy about that, usually. Right, especially because you can buy it and leave a machine that's not your license running in this place. I mean, the
4: the other fantastic thing about the rental licenses is they don't limit the number of installations. So even if, uh, you know, even if it's not not really a budgetary concern or not even really a, a, a timeline concern, if you need to put QLab on 100 computers. You know, you can buy one rental license. There's you know, there's no limit. So
3: in one venue you could be running, you know, ten max all on on the seven one seven dollar day? Yep. Yeah all on one license. Really? So the uh with you know with the uh
4: the the normal licenses, the non expiring licenses, you're limited to three installations. With the rental licenses, there's Absolutely no limit.
1: Well, and and let's be clear about that because F- figure 53 has been really clear about what they mean by three installations. You know, it's not that you can run three shows in three different theaters. Right. That what they're saying is you can have it running on a primary show computer, a backup show computer, and an off-site designer's editing machine, be it your laptop or your right. home desktop or whatever. But that that that's how it's... You know, it's it's not intended to be used to run more than one show or multiple parts of a show that need to run on separate computers.
4: Right. Right. And uh, although I have had uh, some discussions on the forums about this, because uh, I brought up the point that the wording of that license is very clear, but seems uh, definitely to be directed at organizations, you know, that 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 wording makes a lot of sense if you're a theater company or a venue purchasing a license and i said um i'm a freelance designer uh purchasing a license and uh it seems sort of less clear what the expectations are in that case
3: Uh, can you leave your computer running a show you've programmed and go home and use your laptop at home
4: Yeah, I mean, without, I don't want to speak for figure 53, but it seems like that's okay. It seems like as an individual owning a license, it is acceptable for me to, you know, put my license on a show computer at a theater and then move it to another theater on the next show. As long as, as Andy said, I'm not running it on three different shows at once.
1: I have to say, with the price of the rental license, I won't lend groups my licenses anymore. Yeah, you know, I used to do that.
4: Uh, I made that same decision recently.
1: If you can't afford fifty or a hundred bucks to pay for the rental license, you know, maybe you can't afford to do what you're trying to
3: do. And your check's not going to clear anyway, right? I learned this the hard way. I set up a school, went and helped them set up lights. I put my license on this laptop for the for the one event, the one night show they were going to do. I assumed that you would. It was controlled by you know three. So when I went home and reinstated it on my home machine it would kill the other one but it doesn't work it's really on just the honor system and so that other license was stuck on that other machine and a week later his machine was stolen, his laptop was stolen what
1: they've said about that is that it's a that, that that's why your license has to get authorized with their server when you first install it on a computer so they know how many times it's been installed, but they've also said that it's not like some, you know, larger software companies where, you know, you get three installations and you will never get a fourth installation.
3: Well, that's why if you deauthorize it, you would think yeah, it, would, but it would even if that you count. don't
1: de- even if you don't deauthorize it their system won't automatically stop you from installing it again it that basically what happens is they know every time your license is installed right and if it looks at least i think what they've said on the the forums is that if it looks like somebody is doing something inappropriate then a human will intervene
4: yeah i mean that's that's one of the reasons that uh like andy just said i I've recently (laughs) made a life choice to (laughs) not keep lending my license around to people because
3: I don't want to lose track of where they are. And that's exactly what happened to me. Now I'm very careful about it. Now that I understand, I honestly was doing it assuming that there was a three count and deauthorizing it would open it up or authorizing another one would kill another one that wasn't, you know. Obviously, that's not the case.
1: And incidentally, there is also... um you could talk to F- Figure Fifty Three about uh, site licensing, if you're in a situation where that makes sense. A friend of mine, who runs the the program at a high school that wants to use QLab in a bunch of places, talked to them about a site license. The price was a rather reasonable increment.
3: Well, I gotta say, I mean, for me, seven hundred forty nine bucks to do all this stuff is well worth it. I. It just seems absolutely essential to should be the first thing you buy. And then you have all these options and ideas, and it just opens up this whole universe to you. So, On your sharing preferences here, you're talking about turning off uh, sharing of everything. Uh, have you ever heard of anyone being hacked during a show or somebody jumping in there?
4: No. Uh, I just don't like the risk. I mean, some of these things, I honestly couldn't even tell you exactly what they do like i know mark you use a bluetooth remote i've literally never used bluetooth for anything
3: oh i wouldn't Um, wouldn't be able to do my show without it i use five different bluetooth devices
4: yeah i don't i've never used time machine i mean i I know what it is i've never used it uh (laughs) you're gonna need it sometime (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) i do i keep my own careful manual backups okay um also dropbox yeah. Essentially, has time machine built in. You can go back in time of, in the history of any file in Dropbox. So,
3: well, I name my Wi-Fi network "Erase Your Device," and so nobody ever has ever logged into that. That's just <laughs> enough to terrify anyone. Well,
1: and here's the other thing: WPA2 is secure. So, if you if you use WPA2 encryption and use then the encryption is as strong as your password and if you use at least say 16 characters of truly pseudo random data as your your WPA2 key then nobody's getting into your network in anything approaching a reasonable amount of time like say before the heat death of the <laughs> universe
4: i mean the, the the thing you can do with the show networks too is keep them hidden right. so unless you know the name of it right uh, yeah, you, know, you you won't you you won't even see
1: it. Yeah. Yeah, and while I agree that that's a good idea, it also should not be confused with security. Right. Because absolutely. Because anybody who is at all sophisticated can sniff that network. Absolutely.
4: And, you you still want to secure a network, but just for cosmetics, I think.
1: Oh you know, sure. Hide it. No, I and and you know, hey, it keeps. It makes it even less likely that somebody's going to try to connect to it, so why not do it?
3: Uh, My other question was, uh, maximize the window. Uh, It says, launch the QLab show file, maximize the window. Do not put QLab in full screen mode if you're running video. Is that because it makes it black on the other screen?
4: It makes it gray and fabric textured on the other screen, at least... uh, in my operating system, which I believe is Mavericks, huh. I started the, uh, the oh. protocol checklist when I was only doing sound, really. And then once I started doing video, a couple of things had to change. So that was one of them. When, when I was only using QLab for audio, I told everyone to put it in full screen mode, but that doesn't fly with video. Hmm. The other one is I used to um, always make a custom desktop background with the name of the show right. and some instructions for the operator, right. uh, which is a really good idea, I like uh, that idea if it's an audio-only computer. but you obviously don't want that ending up on a projector so
1: you can put different backgrounds
4: on your even that scares me a little bit because occasionally the computer will get confused about which screen is which or it'll end up mirrored
1: uh-huh. accidentally so yeah that makes sense and there are times that i i will choose something other than black for a desktop intentionally again more in the event space than in the theater world that you know, if I know the majority of an event is going to have the lo- a logo on the screen, I'll make that logo slide the desktop. Right, yeah. So, you know, it, and, and that way I know that even if something gets really screwed up and I need to crash out of QLab and escape out and restart my QList someplace, when I crash out, it's going to just go back to the logo. In, in some contexts,
4: uh, I've almost never done this, but I've done something like put, you know, one white pixel uh. in the corner of the screen <laughs> in contexts where, like, Interesting. it's very important to be able to tell at a glance if the yeah. projector is up and running or something like that. That's but a good that's, idea. That's unusual.
3: A lot of the stuff that you have here on this sheet, I script using Script. So I run through a little show setup file. But that way it takes me out of having to go in and manually tweak a QLab file or go ahead and make sure that so-and-so is happening. Well, it's a great list, and we'll put that up on the... On the website, and everyone can download it and maybe add to it. I'll put, leave the comments open, so people can tweak it, and uh, we'll build a build an amazing list there. Great job, Josh. Yeah, thank you. Our interview today is with Claude Heinz. Claude Heinz Designs. He is the brains behind LX Series, a rich set of software tools for lighting design. Welcome to the queue, Claude.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
3: I am a huge fan of all the stuff that you make, and uh, I've been, really, you were my gateway lighting program that I still use for everything that I do. You're based out of Madison, is that true?
0: I live in Madison right now. I teach at the University of Wisconsin.
3: You teach dancers uh, to use lighting. Is that part of the main reason you designed Console?
0: Well, I'm a lighting designer, so... uh I, that that's my main role at the dance department, and then I teach dancers about lighting and production. Um, and pretty much, I am the, the introduction to everything for dancers as far as the teaching goes, and my main production role is lighting design. And so I, I originally wrote lighting software for me for doing lighting. I, I've been doing it a long time, probably um, more than 30 years or about 30 years, somewhere in there. And it started out, it was uh, all about being able to do a plot on a computer and and sort the paperwork and get that done. And uh, I realized at some point along the process that what I had written for me was good enough for other people to use. So I started selling it, and, and it's evolved from there.
3: Was the original program just LX Console?
0: No, actually... The original, the the first software that was ever a complete program was something I only wrote for myself. It was on a Tandy 102, um, uh, probably predates uh, the PC. Um, it was a little laptop-type computer with about 10-line by 40-character LED display, and it was all character-based. Like, you would press a key, and it would make a tiny little character-based symbol for a, a Lico. And you could do a light plot, and then it would print on a dot matrix printer, and you could add uh, information to the plot. And then I discovered Macintosh, and I, I wrote a, a program called MacLux Pro, starting when I was in grad school. And that was really for, originally for doing, drawing light plots with a mouse. Um, and uh when it started, Macs were black and white, and then I realized that Color Macs came out, and I could do a light plot in color, and I could actually uh, render what the lighting would look like, show you the beam, and, and, and MacLux Pro lasted a long time. It actually would still run up until uh, OS X 10.7 when they cut out the support for uh, Rosetta. Uh, But uh, somewhere um, around 2006, I could see the end of the line there. So I started over from scratch to do a MacLux Pro type program. uh, And that's where the LX series started. Um, It started, the console software started actually as a way of controlling the rendering part of the plot program so that you could turn lights on and off with the with the console, uh, that was built into MacLux Pro. But in this scenario, there were some limitations having to having to have your cues tied to your plot. So I separated them into two separate things. With dance, you're often recycling cues and um, uh, copying and pasting a set of cues from one show into another show, and 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 so uh, I was really after a, a massive cue editor based on USITT ASCII interchanging cues, so that, that I could upload to a Lightboard. And um, the the way the whole thing started was that um, not every Lightboard would support ASCII. And uh, about the time that the first NTECH um, USB DMX Pro came out, right, uh, I, I, I started. I said, oh, well, here, any... Board that can output DMX, I could just capture into the queue editor so I could at least capture my cues and then I could spit them back out one at a time and record them into the board. So it was a, a way of um, actually just interchanging cues from the computer to the light board. And then it was kind of like, well, if it can send out DMX, well, why can't it fade between cues? And so I I made it able to fade between cues and then I sort of realized, oh well, I got the makings of a, a basic light console here and started adding more stuff and then there's people like Mark who asked me, Can it do this? and <laughs> he said, Well, sure if I work on it for a little while and and it, it just got more and more complex and right now I actually run a bulk of shows off of just the Mac and LX console through uh, ArtNet
3: well that's, um, that's me and that's my entire life is that I mean to yeah. me the shocking thing about what you do is I would literally post to the forum and say gosh it would be neat if this could happen and then two days later you release a new version of it and it's done exactly what I wished it would do so you're kind of like my magical lighting fairy yeah. <laughs> You know, I, it just was always stunned to me that you could do something so quickly and reach a real human in the middle of this process and that you're so passionate about it.
0: Well, when things make sense in terms of I can see why you would want to do that lighting wise, there's a clear framework for it. Then figuring out how to do it with the computer is not so hard. I mean, it's hard, but it's... Uh, having somebody want to do something that's kind of weird and I don't see the framework, I, I could see the reason why they might want to do it, but I don't see the framework of how you would control it. Then it's not so easy to just two days later,
3: come up with something and go, Oh, there it is. Are you claiming I'm logical? Is that what you're doing?
0: No, I just, um, I, I could see, a I could see why you wanted to do stuff and, and see a framework where it would work for other people in a general kind of way. Right. As opposed to just some specific thing that, you want to accomplish.
3: Um, Can we go back for just a second to Max Lux Pro? Was that able to control lighting externally, or was it more of just a data in, data out thing?
0: No, it was just a data in, data out. It had a little console kind of thing, and you could write cues and run them and see a simulation of them on mm-hmm. the Mac, but that's as far as it went. It never really... There wasn't an NTECH USB output, Um, And and there wasn't uh, ArtNet at that time. I I could always see the potential for it. Someday, somebody can just use a a computer like this and run light cues, and you can see it rendered on the screen, and then you can see it happen in real life.
2: I have to say, I'm honored to be speaking to you, because as a MacLux Pro user, I loved it. I was introduced to it in undergrad in the mid-90s and i've been looking for something like it ever since and i'm a big fan of it it paperwork and everything doing light plot i have say in the mid-90s that was the software we went to and i discovered it from my mentor and we used it on every single production and so i have to say thank you very much Uh as a user i loved it
3: how did that help you as a lighting designer i don't really know that process
2: Well, back in the day, we used to have to do everything by hand. And we'd have drawing the little with the field template on the paper. And all of a sudden, our department had one of the old black Mac laptops. And we went out, bought Mac Lux Pro. So instead of doing everything by hand, we started just drafting it out, putting all the information in. And it generated all of our paperwork. So instead of me spending... 10-20 hours generating all the paperwork, doing all the drafting I would just do it all on the Mac and hit generate and I would have my paperwork.
3: So is that to show you what channel things are patched to and where the fixtures are going and what fixtures are going where, is that right?
0: Yep, all that stuff is kept track of on the Uh, The the drawing is linked to all those databases. So basically now with the LX series, you just click on a light and then in the inspector window, it shows you all the properties of the light, what channel it is, what dimmer it's plugged into, all that stuff. And you can just flip over to another screen and see it all as a channel list. You can look at it and see what color count, how many cuts of each type of color you need. You just flip to a different screen. So if you change your mind and go... Um I'm tired of R eighty and I want to try Lee one twenty. You just change it all to Lee one twenty and it all comes out.
3: And that's all, all happening at the- LX Beams, is that correct?
0: Yep. Yeah.
3: Right. So I for those people that don't use this stuff, um, it's really LX Beams is the plotting software sort of. You can correct me on that. And then it's its sibling is uh LX Free, which is a free version, but LX Beams talks to LX console, and so you can move a light in either program, and it'll affect the other program. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, it. It you set it up either with AppleScript or a OSC connection, or um, uh, LX Beams will actually listen to the Art ArtNet or streaming ACN and and react to that. Um, so you can control the rendering of lights in LX Beams with LX Console and. With the OSC connection back the other way, if you turn a light on and and see the beam in LX Beams, it will change that channel in LX Console. Um, So if that's actually outputting to the stage, then you see the beam appear on your computer and you see the light turn on on stage.
3: Well, the coolest thing about LX Beams, which I've barely... I just haven't had time to really work on it that much, but when I play with my movers in my office, it generates a 3D stage. And so you can put actors on stage and actually move the lights around in a virtual environment. And it shows you what it would look like on stage. So you can do like moving light program, well, any kind of light programming and sort of get a feel for what that's going to actually do in real time. That's absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, you can, if if you've got the LX beams talking to LX console, you can take the beam of a mover on the plot, on the plan view, and you drag it on the stage to some other location and it will move on the stage to that location in real life.
1: Another amazing thing with working in a 3D environment, I was doing a show that was a a quick hit, you know, in and out for one performance in a black box space. And it's a really weird space with multiple catwalks at multiple levels wherever you want to put a light there's a catwalk in the way of the throw you're trying to get to the stage in a super tight schedule with this show i built the whole space in 3d and Vectorworks from the 2d drawings they sent me i checked the beam drawings of every light as i put them in place to make sure i wasn't going to hit anything when we got there the master electrician was shocked And he said it was the first time a designer had come in that they hadn't had to move anything at focus because it's just so hard in traditional 2D drafting to figure out whether you can do what you think you can do, that you've got to work in 3D and see it in
3: 3D to know if that's going to work. How do you make these 3D worlds? I mean, that seems like a pretty advanced programming setup.
0: Alex, Beams is not... A full 3D CAD program. You can draw simple 3D surfaces like legs and borders and catwalks. You can determine the kind of thing without getting into the huge details of 3D modeling, the the kind of stuff that you're describing of, of needing to know if the light can get from where it is to where you want it to work. And then you look at it in section, or or look at it in. It's actually got a little rendering that'll show you 3D camera view as well. It'll allow you to import more complex geometry, like from SketchUp or something. So if you had a set that was done in SketchUp, you can export it in a and load it into LX Beams. But it's not got all the kind of surface. Texture control and of what you see in the rendering, it's pretty much flat shaded. You can't put wood texture on something and see that. But that's really not the point. The point is is to quickly know, will the light do what you want it to do? And be able to do that more or less by just drafting your regular light pl- plot through your regular process and not having to get into all the details of the three D 3D, 3D rendering, if you've done any, can take hours of modeling. Um, just to get something going.
1: And you usually end up having to fake it to make it look right. What I discovered is, at least in my world, it's just not that useful because it's not that accurate. I can decide I'm going to take this model of a wooden table with a realistic wood texture and put it on the stage. I'm going to light it with colors that I know well and... Even on a calibrated monitor, I look at it and say, that's not what those colors look like.
0: Well, if you think about it, um, what 3D rendering does is artificially create a camera. And I don't know if you've uh, ever had uh, pictures taken of your lighting, and they just don't come out and show anywhere near the subtlety of what it really looks like with your eye. Right. Um, you, you can get some nice, pretty pictures, you know, especially ones that are very colorful, and, and there's a pattern to them, and you go, oh, that lighting looks so great. But the uh, real uh, subtle, sophisticated lighting, there's just no way you capture that with uh, even a very, very sensitive camera. And so that's sort of what your problem is with, doing 3D modeling and wanting it to look like what it's really looking like is the same way that you can't take a picture with a real camera. You can't take a picture with an artificial camera and get that that real subtlety that you can, at least not with the way that modeling goes now um, on anything less than a huge render farm, like they make um, CGI for movies, and you can get it to look pretty real. But people are cheating and adjusting that, and, and the point is is to make it look like what you want it to for the movie, where for lighting, you would want it to look like what your lighting looks like. And those are two different two different goals there.
1: Yeah, and that was my experience, is that when I have done things that I needed a render to show a concept to a client or something, what I ended up doing was faking something until it looks like... What it looks, what it should look like, rather than actually doing in the software what we're going to do in the space.
0: It's very useful. You know, I was doing actually working this morning on um, working with a, a, a potential hanging set for a dance, and it's going into a space that I don't usually work in. It's kind of peculiar in the in the in the audience point of view. It's deceiving when you walk in there what you think you're going to get and what you actually get. And so I wanted to know whether it was worthwhile, whether the size of what I was proposing to hang would actually make sense in the space. Would it fill the space or would it look like this tiny little thing? And so I did a, a 3d model and I lit it. Um, and it's not what it really will look like, but it's enough to give me this, the sense that, okay, I can create an environment with this and it will work. Um, that's the kind of thing that i think is the most useful part of uh doing pre-show rendering.
1: Yeah, i agree. Pat- particularly pre-visualizing issues of scale in a venue that you haven't e- that you're either not used to working in. I mean, when you work in the same room for 10 years, you pretty much know. But when you have to work in a new venue, um, you know, one one way i've used it is with screen size, you know, that for events, you know, we're talking about, okay, well, how big does it really need to be to be effective? And you know, because it may be that going that next step bigger in size doubles the cost. A quick sort of thumbnail sketch 3D model can often really help
3: to to show that. You do have incredibly Adonis models in your modeling program where'd you get those
0: well the the original models um, in lx beams were um, sort of inherited from some old models uh, it's kind of hard pushing around old 3d points and vectors and uh, meshes and and they came from an old program called meshworks that i sort of adapted and pushed and sort of like working with modeling clay I sort of made some models. They're pretty crude, but the they're very, very low uh, polygon count, so they would render really, really fast. Um, and just recently, I've been using a program that you use for dance choreography called Dance Forms, and it takes a couple of steps to get the model out of Dance Forms, that you can pose a dancer um, and uh, export it, and then re-import it into SketchUp, and then um, convert those uh, the polygons into what you can put into LX beams, and you have to rescale it and do some stuff. But um, so my latest models are actually much more. They actually have noses and eyes and things like that that the other ones had a a sort of a, a plane or two for a face, and that was that was mostly what it was.
3: <laughs> so. You work with a lot of dancers. Are are you part of the dance department or the theater department? Or I guess they're kind of the same thing, right?
0: No, they're separate here. Um, I am part of the dance department. Uh, The uh, dance uh, grew out of, uh, long history grew out of the kinesiology department, uh, really, uh, on this campus. It was the first ever uh, degree-granting dance program Um, in the country. And so it has a very, very long history, but um, where other uh, younger programs came more naturally out of the performing arts, this one came out of uh, uh, really uh, athletics and kinesiology.
3: And how is lighting dance different than lighting traditional theater stuff?
0: Well, your aims are, are different. Um, the, um, theater, uh, has a script of some kind that's a a verbal script that you can follow along. And and, uh, there may be actors may have blocking and movement, uh, but there's always that text that you refer to for the story and dance has a different kind of story. um, And it's not translated in kind of in a literary way where you can say this movement means this thing. It, it has uh, in a precise way. You can say this movement evokes this emotion or this uh, feeling, and you get a message from that movement, but it's not as easy to pin down. So you have to really develop your own understanding of looking at the movement and what it's saying to you in order to be able to create lighting for it. Hmm. And then the um, where uh, the words are... Are very important in theater, so there's a premium on seeing faces and expression of faces and we read a lot of emotion out of that in the dancer the the expression comes from the whole body and you want to reveal the form of the whole body and the face may not be as important as just how the arm is held or the upper body carriage or or the, the actual shape that the dancer is making so your priorities are different where um where you would use much more front light in a, in a theater in a play in dance. I tend to use the front light for the curtain call after the dance is over.
3: And, and is that why not. a lot of lighting comes from the legs, from the in the um, wings there?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely why it comes in from the wings because that creates shadows and that reveals the the three dimensional surface of the body. So you see it the body as a sculpture in space hmm. um and that um one of the illusions of dance is that um that the dancer kind of is uh, supernatural and they they sort of defy gravity they they do things that that it looks like it would hurt us to do right us normal people <laughs> i think it does um, hurt them <laughs> and so the the light from the side also help helps separate the dancer from the floor and visually and um increase that illusion of defying gravity. So there's there's a couple of purposes. Huh.
3: Um, well, how do dancers react when they start to see the importance of lighting and dance and how, how it can really accentuate what they do?
0: Oh, um, I, I think that um, it's like learning to draw, that in order to really learn to draw, you have to learn to see what you're actually seeing and then you can draw it because your mind sort of makes assumptions about things so uh, a lot of teaching dancers about lighting is educating them on what they're seeing and and it's not by accident that that looks like that it's very cleverly crafted to look like that and give you this illusion that you're transported into a different world so they they react very positively when they when you sort of it doesn't happen by accident they go oh and then I make my students do lighting, then they have to get behind the the computer and create lighting, and they have a, a very good appreciation then for the thought process right. that's required, even if they don't know all the technical details.
3: And are you typically using LX console to uh, out, DMX out?
0: Yeah, um, well, it goes through ArtNet to a little NTEC converter box to DMX. But um,
3: Are you using um, the ODE unit? Yeah,
0: the ODE unit. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, And then that goes into a splitter because I have uh, various intelligent things on one. U- it's all in one universe worth of addresses, but some things go to the intelligent stuff and some things go to the regular old dimmers.
3: Uh, you know, But you have two universes, and you're using them both with one ODE? No, no, no.
0: I'm only using one okay. universe, but it goes from the ODE into a DMX splitter, so I have multiple lines going to different places in the theater. Oh. That's all. Um, gotcha. Uh, if I had multiple universes, I would just keep things on separate universes, but I, I only have one.
3: Yeah, I need that um, Yeah, a second universe unit, like that new MKE-2 thing.
0: I have a, a DMX King that's ArtNet to two universes. Right. That that works very well. I, I use that in a when we do performances in a studio. Yeah. Because I, I only want to I, I want to separate the the stage left from the stage right stuff. So I send one universe to stage left and one universe to stage right, it's a-
1: Why write your own software rather than use something? I mean, it certainly at this point. I mean. Obviously, you've invested a lot of time in this, but I imagine that Vectorworks and some of the other solutions were out there when you decided to start over again from MacLux Pro.
0: The thing about using a a CAD program like Vectorworks, or there's um, lighting solutions that fit into AutoCAD as well, is that you have all the overhead of that CAD program, and it's not really designed to be a lighting program. And the um LX series software is designed to to really be the same kind of process as you used to have the little plastic template and you lay it down on your drafting board and you draw something and, and then you attach information to it. So it's very directly written for lighting design. And that it, it's just much, much, much faster for me to use that than it is to um I, I, you know, I can learn VectorWorks. Uh, it's just uh, more complex than I need to to do lighting.
3: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. It you know, your Alex console is a uh, Swiss Army knife, really. You open it, looks pretty simple, and then you start poking on things, and all kinds of tools pop out and jump in your face. And I mean, it has grown. I don't even I don't even know if it's grown whether it has grown or I suddenly found more buttons to push on.
0: Yeah, well, that's the the trick of any good software is that that allows you to get in and and customize it to get all the things that that you want it to do. Well, sort of hiding that complexity so that you can. It's also very easy to mm-hmm. to access.
3: Well, you and you're constantly upgrading it and adding new features to it. The biggest upgrade to me in the whole world was the dimmer to be able to do a dimmer check, uh, through touch OSC. So I can just walk out with my iPhone on stage and hit start dimmer check and then assign my aside, assign those, assign those dimmers to my patch, uh, in real time out in the audience. And I mean, it used to be a two hour process. And now that whole thing takes about, well, as long as it takes me to run through the dimmers which can be yeah 10 minutes that that
0: was that was driven by you know like gee somebody asking me could it do this and and i thought you know what i could really use that and i i use my iphone in the theater to turn lights on and off um, while i'm working all the time now it's Mm kind of like i used to have to either have somebody sitting on the board or run up to the light booth every time i needed to do something how did i do that um it it seems like such a no brainer now that you've got it
3: right and i hand it to the uh to the lighting designer so i do my i do the patch and then i hand the iphone off to them and they take it up in the lift and so they can trigger the lights each individual color or whatever individual lights or all the greens and they can do the focus without me having to help or run back and forth to my computer. So it takes me out of the loop and they just have the iPhone and can deal with it on their own.
0: My wife got out a typewriter the other day um, to fill out some forms, uh, tax forms. And I walked in and I was like, what is that? (laughs) But you know, um, we actually did, when I was in college, we wrote term papers on a typewriter and and now you wouldn't even dream of writing something that long on it on anything less than a computer.
3: What do you think the future, uh, do you have a future upgrades in mind or what are your dreams for your, for the software?
0: Well, I, I think always that it would be nice to um, have more tools that you could work on a conceptual level, you know, sort of a, 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 a more outer level and then have it fill in more of the, the details for you. And I haven't yet figured out all of what that would be, you know, like... If, if I was thinking about a show and I, I know that I, um, I need two colors, could I say, well, make me a, two colors in uh, nine areas or something and have the computer put the lights in for me? Something like that, uh, I think, as far as designing. If I could get uh, a bridge from an imagination, an outline of what I wanted to create to actually putting the lights down. I think that would be great. I don't know how that works and how if you don't have to get in and tweak it so much that you might as well just do what we do and design the lighting.
1: Right. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm imagining almost something you could input magic sheets into.
0: Magic sheets are something that are is interesting problem the other way of driving a magic sheet from uh, from your plot after you've drawn it, and it's something it's struggled with. Uh, since back in MacLux Pro days, is people naturally do that and they make up their own magic sheets. But it's quite complex to do that automatically in some sort of uh, form uh, because by the time you write all the rules out for how you want your magic sheet to come out, you could have just done your magic sheet and printed it and been on your way to the show. Um, so uh, there's there's some tools in LX beams that allow you to um, to create a graphic little picture um, and and copy and paste that and and build up your magic sheet from the um, from the information that's contained in the reports. Uh, but it's still a process of deciding each of those groups how you want to represent them on your magic sheet. It tends to be a very personal thing. The magic sheet's kind of like your. Your uh, design in a nutshell, and um, it's very hard to generalize that. So flip that around and, and try to generate a light plot from a magic sheet is a similar kind of problem. But it's worth working on.
3: What is a magic sheet?
0: A magic sheet tells you in a graphic representation um, where your channels are and um, and what they do.
3: Is it my light so, plot?
0: It's kind of like a, an encapsulation of a light plot. There's different styles, but one style is to have a miniature picture of a stage, and you would have all your blue channels, say, that show you where they are on the stage. And then you'd have another little picture of a stage, and it, you would have all your amber or red channels. Yep, I and do that so, using
3: your beams program.
0: If you're if you're looking for the upstage center red, you find it on the map, and you go, oh, that's channel 67. Um, and then you know how to, how you're, uh, how to control it. That's what a magic sheet does.
3: One other question for me, QLab, do you use that with LX console and how, do you integrate that at all in what you do?
0: Oh yes. Um, uh, I, QLab is one of those, uh, programs that it's, it's kind of like, um, how did we get along without it? Uh, <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, I've gotten quite complex with, a. Uh, QLAB and LX console talking back and forth to each other. Um, I did a, a show this fall that had very specific lighting sequences, kind of like music visualization, um, almost like concert lighting, tied to sound cues that were playing on QLAB. And uh, I discovered uh, that uh, very occasionally, um, wireless networks drop packets. And it's really awful if that's the OSC packet that triggers the next 20 light cues that are all timed out that should <coughs> should have started on this very note. It, it drove me nuts. And I spent weeks after the show, you know, like I, I just had people standing by to manually back up and trigger cues uh, just in case the, the, the timing didn't work between the, the computers and um, and finally, with Wireshark, I was able to catch it and say the the packet left QLab here and it never got to this computer here, um, or it never got through the interface in the in the operating system. I don't know where it where it got lost. So I I, I learned to always hardwire your Ethernet connections when it's Triggering of cues that are absolutely
1: critical. Well, because even even with hardwired, there is no guarantee that UDP packets are going to be delivered.
0: That's true. They say that in the um, in the documentation. <laughs> Undependable <laughs> protocol. That that would be that would be true. So um, I suppose that TCP is the way to go um, and get a handshake to know that your your mail has been delivered.
3: What does UDP stand for in real life?
0: Uniform Datagram Packet, I believe. I get the... Get, it's something very close to that. So
1: the the long and the short of it is there are basically two kinds of packets that live on modern networks. UDP packets and TCP packets. UDP packets, the computer spits out the UDP packet, just assumes that it got delivered or not, you can never be sure, but it doesn't do anything to check. TCP it has to actually negotiate a connection with the other end. The other end acknowledges each packet of data coming in. And if one goes missing, then the sender resends it. The problem with that for anything that needs to be real-time, for instance, the Skype conversation we're using to record the show, is that TCP can introduce delay so often things that need to be real time or close to real time are done with UDP and you just have to accept that you may lose a packet. You know, there's this thing among network engineers, you know, they say, well, I'd like to tell you this joke about UDP, but you might not get it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there must be a solution that's um, that's somewhere in between because if you're sending like Artnet um, and depending on, on how many packets a second you want to send, um, when a queue is fading in LX console, it's sending at the maximum, which is about 40 times a second. That's the maximum DMX rate. If you drop one of those packets, it doesn't matter because one fortieth of a second um, is not visible in any kind of lighting terms. It's not even really visible when you're fading a moving fixture, uh, that kind of resolution. But if that's the one packet That's the OSC message that triggers a sequence of cues on another computer. That's a whole bigger problem. Um, But you're right. There's no guarantee with TCP of when the message will get delivered. It's just that it will get delivered. That's your trade-off.
1: I mean, I'm fortunate that in most of the work I do, I'm both the lighting and sound designer. One of the redundancies that I sort of build into my process is that I tend to try not to put timing in the light board at all. That every light cue is fired by the show control software, typically QLab. Because then if I miss a cue, I miss a cue. But when the next one fires, it'll pick it back up. I think
0: probably if I did it again, I would do something more like that. I did a combination of that because I didn't want to put too many eggs in in one computer's basket, kind of. So um, there would be periodic cues from QLab that kept the um, the lighting synchronized with the sound and video. But then there were a whole lot of very small, uh, very quick lighting cues that just ran in a whole sequence on uh, the lighting computer. And so it was sort of a hybrid approach there. And, and I think... That because of the packet drop problem, it may have been wiser just to have QLab time it all out. It just would have been harder to build the Q list in QLab um, than it than it was in LX Console.
3: Well, that's the one thing I do love about LX Console is the fact that I am running QLab. But if I lose Q, well, I don't. I've lost it a few times, mostly because of my Apple scripting screw ups. But I always have LX console running, and I can, in an emergency, run it touch OSC for my iPad to cover my butt if I've lost uh, QLab on a, re- on a just- and have to restart it or something. This was the, the, the backup solution here. And, and
0: during the actual shows, it never dropped a packet. It was just enough during rehearsals that I knew that I couldn't count on the connection. Um, and I haven't seen a drop packet when I went to wired ethernet either. I know that it's a theoretical possibility, but I think that the, the um, the wireless, um, partly I think Apple has something in the operating system that prevents you from spoofing. Um, it, it's a little hard to describe the technicality of it, but it's, um, it kind of keeps track of, uh, whether it thinks that you're a real computer or not. And it, it waits, uh. Uh, and drops packets if it if not. The the backup plan here was a real human being standing by the very critical queues. So if QLab didn't trigger the queue right on the exact note, they could push the go button and it would be slightly off, but it would still run the sequence. So there was a human, human involved. And that, that's the thing with show control is you get tempted to say, oh, well, one person can run this whole big complex operation. And then you go, well, you know, Theater is a a community effort, and there's a reason these jobs are divided up.
3: Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. You're an eloquent speaker, and uh, your passion is is infectious. Thanks, guys. Amazing. Very cool. Thank you. (laughs) Great job, you guys. I'll leave us with a quote. The ultimate metaphoric sound is silence. If you can get the film to a place with no sound where there should be sound, the audience will crowd that silence with the sounds and feelings of their own making and they will individually answer the question of, why is it quiet? If the sloped silence is at the right angle, you will get the audience to a strange and wonderful place where the film becomes their own creation in a way that is deeper than any other. Walter Murch
0: The Cue is produced by Active Media Group in association with The Cue Show cast. Music for The Cue was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11. Go to 11.